Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. Well, so far we have been in a short four-week Christmas series called The Coming of the King, and each week we've been really looking at a different angle uh, of Christmas. Week one, we looked at cosmic Christmas out of Revelation 12. The next week, we talked about coronation Christmas out of Isaiah 9. Last week, we talked about cantata Christmas out of Luke chapter 1. And today, Christmas Eve, none other than classic Christmas. Classic Christmas. The standard story, the story that we grew up on out of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through, I want to read through verse 20. Let's read it all uh, to start with, and then we'll, we'll walk back through in our time, considering what it has to say for us this morning. But let's put it out in front of us to, to start with from the offset. This is what the Word of God says, starting Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in the swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Imagine if I were to ask you to describe how crazy cool outer spaces, only having looked 
at a starry night from the ground. You have 30 minutes to do it. Imagine, describe to me, convince me how crazy cool outer space is when really your experience has been looking up from a field out in the country at the stars. 30 minutes, you feel rushed, so maybe you pull up on your phone uh, a, a few pictures of the Milky Way. Or maybe you have enough time to sit down in front of a TV with me and show me a few clips from Star Trek. You, you have 30 minutes to show me how amazing outer space is, but I don't think there's anything that you can do, in your own power at least, that would do justice to the wonders of outer space. This is, I think, similar to what I feel my task is today. As I describe my God and the glory of God, eternity would be insufficient for me to be able to describe the wonders of God. Don't get me wrong, God is knowable today, right here. He is knowable just like we can as humans and have explored, right, the final frontier. It's knowable. Almighty God shows himself through creation. Look at the mountains. Look at waterfalls. Look at the starry sky. God shows himself. God spoke through the prophets of old. And I'd say most clearly, he revealed himself to mankind. When mankind could see the very face of God, when John 1.14 says he took on flesh, and he dwelt among us. There's no doubt about it. God is knowable. But ultimately, he's incomprehensible. It's impossible to know the depths of who he is. Eternity would not be enough time. It's like going to Alaska, and you see this glacier the size of a mountain, and you're amazed by it, and you come home, and of course, people are like, how was Alaska? And you start to tell them, oh, well, there was this massive glacier, and you try to describe just how massive it is, and how monumental this thing was as you came up to the base of it, and little did you know, it actually went four miles down underwater, and you were only scratching the surface of describing how magnificent it is, and so it is as we try to describe God. Psalm 145 says that his greatness is unsearchable. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says that his understanding is unsearchable. Psalm 139 says that his knowledge is just too wonderful, too high for us to comprehend. We can't contain it. Nevertheless, it's our honor, it's our privilege to study his word, to know him a little deeper, to see him a little more clearly. And I pray that's what we have the opportunity to do right now. In fact, the birth story that we just read reveals six characteristics of this magnificent, glorious God. Six characteristics that I want us just to meditate on um, each briefly as we walk back through Luke chapter 2, the first 15 verses of it. Firstly, we see 
in the first three verses that God is real. Foundationally, God is real. Consider these first three verses. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That's a man in history. That all should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his hometown. Do you notice this story is rooted in the records of history? And the biblical authors are very serious about getting it right. In fact, if you just flip to the next chapter, Luke chapter 3, notice this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Etudia and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Like, why did you just read that? Notice how rooted in the records of history this story is. God is not a fable. This isn't make-believe. This is real history. Mary and Joseph, Jesus, are as real as Mozart, Abraham Lincoln, Napoleon, Jimmy Kimmel. I don't know why I'm rattling off all these names, you, and I don't have any particular reason for those names, but he is as real as any of these individuals are. And so to the skeptic, to the doubter, it is reasonable, I think, to wrestle with doubts, hard questions. We all do. And so you're in good company this morning if you show up and you're like, I've got some, I've got some, some doubts. We all do. We all do. I think it's reasonable. We are all on a journey of our own, of faith. But I hope this particular doubt, that is Jesus' historic existence, if that's a doubt, I hope that's totally squashed this morning for you. I'll, I'll say this. While there are ten references in ancient literature, ten references and historic sources to the governor Tiberius that we just read about in Luke chapter 2. Ten references in ancient literature and history. There are 40 references in ancient literature of Jesus of Nazareth. And we're not just talking about the Bible. We're talking about pagans, non-believing people saying, yeah, he was real. Yeah. And so doubting the historic Jesus it doesn't need to be. There's plenty of other struggles that you could wrestle with. But doubting the historic Jesus is like refusing that Kadarius Tony wasn't offsides. I mean, come on, you can argue that as long as you want, but the reality is, is you're, the evidence is stacked against you and you have to deal with it. So it is. Jesus is real. The second thing that we see, though, is Jesus is not only real, but God is large and in charge of everything. Let's continue reading verses 4 through 6. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now you might be wondering, how do these three verses at all show us that God is large and in charge of everything? Well, let me tell you. We need to know this, that 700 years prior to what's taking place in Luke chapter 2, 700 years earlier, there were prophecies given by God through prophets telling us many things about the birth of Jesus. That is, that he would come from a virgin, that he would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. There was even prophecies of what lineage he would come from. That is, the line of David. There's all these prophecies 700 years before this takes place. Knowing that information. Consider what this text is telling us. First, God, after already proclaiming it 700 years before, now when the time comes, he hand chose a virgin, he preserved her virginity, He made sure that she would be engaged to a man who was related to King David's family from Bethlehem. And then, having that sorted out, he then goes and he prompts the superpower of the world, the Roman Empire, and puts it in the governor's mind. This is a good time for me to have my first census taken. And so he prompts them to do that. And in fact, the census would require that everyone would have to go to their hometowns. For David and his betrothed, that happens to be where the Messiah would be born. And then, if that's not all, he timed the virgin's pregnancy and labor so that the delivery would happen at the exact time when they arrived in the exact town that she's meant to give birth in as said 700 years earlier. This is all to confirm the prophecies that he made hundreds and hundreds of years before. A plan that only God can pull off. God is large and in charge. This tells us that there is no such thing as coincidence or luck. There is no chance or random luck of the draw. There is only God's providence as God would govern all things. God does govern all things across all time. Romans 8.28 says that God, not chance, not luck, not random choice, God makes all things, all things work together. He makes them all work together. And so I couldn't agree more with R.C. Sproul when he says if, if God isn't sovereign over all, God isn't truly God. There is, in fact, not a single maverick molecule, not a single stray molecule in this galaxy. God governs all things. And this matters to you. This matters to you. Because you and I don't understand why everything happens the way it does. Do we? And so this reality does matter 
when things that don't make sense to you, we can know for certainty it makes complete sense to him because he's the one who ordained it. It makes complete sense. The best part of Romans 8, what I just said, that God makes all things work together, the best part is yet to come. He makes all things work together for the ultimate flourishing and goodness of his people. And so when something doesn't make sense, you and I are like, what in the world? We can know that not only he governed it, but in fact he governed it for your ultimate good. And so I'd encourage you, don't be offended that God is sovereign. Don't be offended or turned off that God is governing all things. In fact, be comforted by this reality. The world is in the best hands. Your life is in the best hands. God is real, and He is large and in charge, and yet, those are very big realities, but God is also human. Just notice that in, in these verses here that we just read, particularly in verse 5 and 6, that Mary was to give birth to this child. She was to give birth to this child. God is human. Not the whole triune God. The Father in heaven is not human. The Holy Spirit is not human. But Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, the second person in the Trinity, is in fact 100% human. Just wrap your brain around that with me for a second, could you? The creator of the cosmos, the one who spun the world into existence on his finger like a basketball, was also nursed and burped, right? He had favorite toys, toys that he favored. He had maybe favorite meals that he asked Mary and Joseph for on his birthday. He had loved ones. He had family members that he gathered with on holidays. In fact, he saw loved ones die. And he grieved the loss of his loved ones because he was human. And he feels the feelings you feel. And he weeps about that. He lived in community. And he, that means he faced gossip and slander and hard situations that would normally bring stress and angst on us. He experienced these things. And so I think it's worth us asking, why does this matter? Why, why does it matter that God took on flesh and bones for the full human experience? Have you, have you asked that question? Have you, have you wondered that before? Why? Is this something we could toss away? Or is it something we need to clench with it? closed and tight, white-knuckled fist and not let go of? How significant is it that God took on flesh and bone? Why did he? Well, firstly did it so that he can sympathize with your pain. He not only governs all and thus sees your pain, but in fact he stooped down so that he can know your pain. And so he sympathizes with you. But he also took on flesh and bones so that he would take your place. Not just know your condition, but take your place. 
only as a human he could live out the perfect righteousness expected of humans. He had to have been a human to live out the perfect righteousness expected of you. And only as a human, in fact, he could take on the full judgment deserved by all humans. His holiness and his death, his life and his dying required the full human experience to take the place of humans. So why human, you might ask? It's because you need him to be. And without that reality, you are dead in your sins, destined for hell. Without the promise of a Savior, he is human. He's human. Which leads us to the next one. That God is willing to be humble. He'd have to be to be human, right? Consider verse 7. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there is no place for them in the inn. Remember, this is the same one whose titles also include Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lord of the hosts of heaven. And yet Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant. How crazy is that? He so humbly took on the form of a servant. I mean, you and I, it's like an internal conflict whether or not we'll even give somebody our spot at Walmart, the checkout line at Walmart on Black Friday. Like, oh man, I don't know. I might add 15 minutes to my day. I mean, we cannot deal with a demotion, and yet he took the greatest demotion of all time, didn't he? He accepted the lowest demotion that one could take. The Most High God was born in a dingy manger. And that remained true for the rest of his life. In fact, it says that foxes had holes to go into, birds had nests to go into, and yet the Son of Man didn't even have a place to lie his head at night. Lowly from birth to death, dying the death of a criminal. The fount of living water embraced thirst. The bread of life embraced hunger. The giver of life faced and experienced death. Again, the reason is clear. It's for our benefit. In fact, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you don't have to turn there now, but it says that his poverty, that is him taking on flesh, means our riches. It's in his poverty, it's in his humility that we could reign with Christ one day. And so he is human and thus humble. Next, God is Savior. We see this in the text about our glorious God, that he is Savior. Let me read verses 8 through 11. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. <laughs> How could you not, right? And it keeps going. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God is Savior. I think this angelic messenger's message is worth analyzing and breaking down just a little bit. He came firstly to say, don't fear. Don't fear. I've got what? Good news of great joy for all the people. Let's break that down a little bit. Firstly, he came announcing good news. And this is the most important thing that you could hear today. So please hear it. Good news. Good news. And the good news, in fact, it assumes bad news first, right? It's only good news because there's bad news. It's already taken place unless there's the good news. The bad news is that we are all guilty before God and worthy of a, his just judgment. Maybe you feel pretty good about yourself walking in here. You're like, honestly, not too bad. It is pretty bad. It is. Before a holy God who has no flaws and expects no less for any in his presence, to invite anything flawed in his presence would be degrading on the very nature and being of the Most High God. It is a problem that you and I are flawed. And so, because this bad news, this messenger brings good news. In fact, this good news is great news. That a Savior has come to die in your place, to take on that judgment that we deserve, to give us His righteousness, the great exchange, our judgment for His righteousness, exchange that we could enter the holy presence of God. This is good news. But not just good news, it's good news of great joy. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said, you can't imagine what streams of celebration, what mountains of joy and hills of happiness shall all be yours when Jesus comes and reigns in your soul. This is good news of great joy. So, Christian, do you feel joy this Christmas season? I know many of us feel grief sadness, mourning, because loved ones that aren't with us, celebrating the holidays, looking at all the lights and the traditions and all these things that you might have now without maybe somebody that you wish you could be enjoying it with. There is great grief in the holidays. And yet that's not mutually exclusive with joy. You can indeed have both mourning and joy Sadness, celebration. The coming of our Savior is good news of great joy. That your pardon has been given. Your sin is stomped out. Your eternal inheritance is secure. This is good news of great joy. 
for all people. For all people. So, I think whenever we consider that part there, for all people, I think more than anything, that's a challenge to the church. Christian, that's a challenge to you. This is good news for all people. So don't let comfort keep you from telling someone. Right? May there be no roadblocks, no hindrances. Don't let intimidation keep you from telling someone. This is good news for all people. Don't let prejudice keep you from telling someone. Don't even let long distances around the globe keep you from going to tell someone. This is good news for all people. And as we have our Christmas meals today, can I tell you, don't let family rifts keep you from telling someone. This is good news for them. This is good news for all the peoples. Matthew 28, 19 Jesus calls us to go make disciples of how many nations? All the nations. It's for all the peoples, all the tribes, all the nations, all the tongues. This is good news of great joy. So God is Savior. Lastly, God is worthy to be praised. This is the God that we look at as we look up at the stars. He is worthy to be praised. This is 12 through 15. It says, this will be a sign for you. This is the angel still speaking to the shepherds, right? This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there will be with the angel of a, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Don't let how common this story is make this boring to imagine. It is far from boring to imagine. Imagine how crazy of an experience this would be. One angel appears, that's enough to, for it not to be boring. If you're here with us on Wednesday night, we were doing a study on angels, and you should just consider how they're described. Isaiah 6 says that some of them have six wings. If you go to Ezekiel, it says that some of them are covered in its entirety with eyeballs. Revelation 10 says that only one angel, one angel, could put one foot on the oceans and his other foot across the lands of the earth. These are angelic beings. And it says one appeared before shepherds. Could you imagine being out in a dark field and that shows up in front of you? To make it all the more fearful, it says then a multitude all of a sudden appears with the one. And a multitude would be at least a hundred of these supernatural beings. And all with one voice like an army crying out. They say, glory to God in the highest. Talking about a baby. 
glory. Could you just imagine this thundering army of angels and it's just shaking the earth because they're loud booming voice in sync and they're saying glory to this baby though angels have unbelievable power an army of them doesn't hold a candle to the one christ laying in a crib he is worthy to be praised. Angels aren't worthy to be praised. In fact, they told John in Revelation to get up. Don't worship me. I'm like you, a created being. Worship him, pointing to the lamb on the throne. He is worthy to be praised. And so this God, just by looking at Luke 2, we see he humbly took on flesh to be our savior. He is worthy of all of creation's praise. He is worthy of your praise. This is just a glimpse of the infinite God who made you. This is really trying to describe outer space by looking up at the stars at night. Certainly insufficient for what he deserves, but hopefully sufficient for you to just get a glimpse of the grandeur of the God who deserves your worship this morning. And so two things he offers you as we're closing here. Firstly, an invitation Secondly, he offers you a promise. Invitation and promise. The invitation is this. Really, it's less of an invitation and more of a call. That you would give your attention and your affections to him. This Christmas season and every day forth. He deserves your attention and your affection. My adage to that would be, do it today, not tomorrow. Don't wait is what I would say. Again, just another quote from Spurgeon. He says, most men forget God all day. But then they ask him to remember them come nighttime. Don't be them. Maybe you've heard the famous Jelly Roll song. Um, I only talk to God when I need a, sav- when I need a favor. Heard that? I only pray when I don't get a prayer. That's foolishness. Don't follow Jelly Roll for your theology, please. <laughs> if, if you can get anything from this sermon. <laughs> Today. Don't wait to ask God until you need a favor. He deserves your attention and your affections Today. Not just on Christmas, not just when family maybe brought you here, but on December 26th, he deserves your attention and your affection. Next week, he deserves your attention and your affection. January, February 2027, 3032, he deserves your attention and your affection. And so he gives you this invitation today, but secondly, a promise that he will never leave nor forsake those who are his. Please hear that today. If you're hearing this message and he's drawing you to himself, know this, that God loves you, God died for you, and he will come again to reconcile all things to himself. But I'll just be clear with this one last thing. You cannot receive that promise if you don't accept his invitation. That promise is for those who receive the invitation. So this Christmas, 
receive his invitation, commit your life to him, and then enjoy his promises for all of eternity. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com.